Okay, July 18, 2010, in Bangladesh at the ISKCON Studies Conference, Enculturation. Good morning, um, and welcome to day four of the ISKCON Studies Conference. Uh, a couple of quick things before we move on. Um, okay, one of them will have to wait. Um, okay. The other day, a few of you were asking about Jan Olaf Benson and getting a copy of his paper, etc. Um, he's agreed to publish it in the Eastern Studies Journal, uh, the next, next issue of which will be out reasonably shortly. Uh, don't ask me when exactly, but we're working on it. Um, but speaking of the Eastern Studies Journal, I have about five or six copies of the first issue, so if anybody would like to buy one, please let me know. They're 10 euros each. Uh, very good, and they're a very good reading. And all the papers, all the talks from this conference will be available, um, you know, subject to the agreement of the, uh, of the speakers on our website at discontstudies.org. So if you missed any bits, then that's, that's the place where you can catch up with them. Um, transport, so um, I just, we're just trying to organise lifts and things for tomorrow and the next day and, you know, how we can get all, everybody away quickly and safely and happily. Um, just to do that, I need to get a rough idea. How many people are leaving from Pizza Airport tomorrow? We just have a quick show of hands. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. That's two, right? So about seven or eight. Okay, and then the following day, how many people are leaving from Pizza Airport? One, two, three, four. Okay, so about eight and four people take it. Okay. No, what? Huh? You're not. Okay, so about six and four. Okay, that's great. Okay, that's good. And oh, I would like to offer a quick thank you to Tatavit Prabhu for organising the tour yesterday and, and telling us everything we ever need to know about the And if anybody's volunteering to do next year's tour, please let me know. And um, we can do that. And one last reminder also about registrations. If you haven't registered yet, please do so. And otherwise, we're going to have to get Kamari Priya on here. You wouldn't like that. Um, and that's it. So I'm going to hand you over now to Hiboye Karagonia, who is going to start us off today. You're not Hiboye. My name is Hiboye. <laughs> Today is Lal Krishna's birthday. Yeah. He took such great joy in leading the chanting of Hare Krishna to Pranava that I thought <laughs> Pranava should lead the Hare <laughs> chanting of, of happy, happy, happy birthday. Uh, 
Carol Lyman at Chapel Hill. Uh, she's a member of Shastrick Advisory, Advisory Council to the East Coast UBC. She's an associate editor at the Vancouver Broadcast Magazine. She has taught primary and secondary students for 27 years and 18 years primary and uh, for 18 years primary and secondary school principal. She's author of Baikuta Children, a book on school management and, te and teaching, and dozens of articles on education and spirituality. She's currently leading an international team to develop a primary literacy curriculum in 25 languages. Uh, she will be speaking today about a very interesting topic about providing questions regarding education in Islam. So, I give the floor to Kurnadeva Das. So, we're going to look today at a topic that uh, Jan Olaf also discussed, and one that is probably one of the greatest dividing forces in education in ISKCON. The title is in culturalization, which is a term often used by the Catholics to denote how they merge their religious and spiritual teachings with the local culture in which they are preaching. So we're going to look at several areas today. First, we're going to define culture because this is the relationship between religion or spirituality and culture. We're going to look specifically at areas of educational culture. Then two types of culture. A culture that's native to a religion and a culture that's alien to a religion. Then we're going to look at the three possible relationships between a religion and alien cultures. And then we're going to move to a little different sphere, that of organizational theory. And there we're going to look not so much at societies, but at organizations in terms of whether they're closed, porous, or open, and see how that relates to the three different ways of relating religion to alien cultures. So what do, what do we mean by culture? Now, sometimes people use the word, oh, I, am I speaking too fast for our second language people? Yes. Okay. If I get too fast again, just wait. Slow down. Many times, people use the word culture to mean a good culture. If I say, oh, he's a very cultured gentleman, that's something positive. Many times, people use the word quality in the same way. I would like to get a quality car. But here we're going to look at the word culture in a neutral sense. Uh, simply what gives meaning to a society how the ideals of a society are embodied. How do they find expression? How do we determine what means something? A very simple example of how culture decides meaning is if we contrast America and India in terms of how do you show respect for a guest who's come to your home for a meal. So in the United States, if I'm a guest, and someone says, would you like another japati? And I say, no, thank you. Then the way they show respect for me is by not giving me another japati. However, when I am in India, or in the home of Indians outside of India, and I am a guest, and, I, and they say, would you like another japati? And I say, no, thank you. The way they show respect for me is by putting another japati on my plate. 
In fact, they might not even ask me whether or not I want one before they put one on my plate. So according to American culture, their behavior is rude. However, if an Indian guest comes to a home in America and you say, would you like another japati, and they say no, and you don't give them one, they would think that that was rude. So although both cultures are interested in hospitality and both cultures are interested in respect, the way hospitality and respect is embodied is quite different. In fact, it's opposite in the two different cultures. So culture is how you embody your ideals, how the ideals that you have in your mind and your heart take shape on the gross platform. And here we have a list, how do they do it? Through language, through symbols, through rites and rituals, through artistic and aesthetic forms. Now here we're looking, and I don't know if you can read that, but here we're looking at the different areas of educational culture. So first is your, first is your educational philosophy or view, which would be what is a learner, what is a teacher, what is the purpose of education, what is the process by which somebody learns, what is the goal of education for the individual and society, and many other topics. That would be your educational philosophy. Next would be the school culture. What kind of etiquette and rules and rituals do you have in your school? I used to spend a lot of time visiting schools when I first became a school principal, and I remember going to one, what I would call a free school, I'm sure Jan Olaf would call it a hippie school, where I saw that in the secondary classroom, the students were throwing their books around the room and speaking to their teacher as if he were a not welcome dog of the neighbor. And that was considered fine in that particular school. In some schools, everybody has to get in a line or a queue to go anywhere. In some schools, all the children sit at desks. I visited one school recently in the UK where all the children from age four were just sitting in their desks and they were all reciting the same thing at the same time. Then I've been to other schools in the UK, like St. Christopher's, where the kids were working at different tables or on the floor, and they were very noisy and engaged in different projects. So that deals with the etiquette, the rules, and the rituals. Then the classroom organization. Are the classes organized by age? All the seven-year-olds in one classroom, or do you have mixed age groups? Do you have one teacher that loops with the children? That means a teacher that teaches children for many years, or do you get a new teacher every year? Is the curriculum taught en masse to all the students? Is it taught in groups, or is it taught individualized? Then the student body. Do you have an all-girls school, an all-boys school? Do you have a co-educational? Do you mix students of different academic qualifications and abilities? Or do you separate students by abilities? There are more. I'm giving you just uh, indicative areas. Then your educational approach. Do you use a spiral approach where you teach something at a low level, then another thing at a low level, then another thing at a low level, and go back to the same thing at a higher level, the next thing at a higher level? Do you have a mastery approach where the students have to master a particular area of the subject before they go on? Do you have what's called programmed or incremental learning, where the students have to master very tiny bits of information or skills before they go on? Uh, there's a, a, others also, the unit or thematic approach, 
is one where instead of teaching by discrete subjects, you teach, say, China. And while you teach China, you're learning history, you're learning geography, you're learning language, you're learning art, you're learning science. Then what subjects do you teach? What subjects do you consider important? What extracurricular subjects do you teach? What teaching methods do you use? Do you just lecture? Do you have interaction? Are the students doing projects? What kind of assessment strategies do you have? What kind of student discipline do you use? Do you have a system of rewards and punishment? Do you have some sort of overriding philosophy? Does each teacher do their own thing? That's in itself is a several week discussion. I mentioned about assessment. What kind of educational materials do you use? Do you use material? The materials that you use uh, often communicate your culture in a subtle way. In education, we have four areas of curriculum. One is the planned curriculum, which you have on paper and you show to your donors or your parents and it makes you look good. One is the actual taught curriculum. That's what happens in the classroom. And very often, the taught curriculum and the planned curriculum are not the same. Even if they're designed by the same person, often they're markedly different. Then there's the hidden curriculum. And the hidden curriculum and the null curriculum both communicate culture, both in the behavior of the teachers and in the educational materials. For example, when I was a little girl in America, all of the books had pictures only of people with white skin, blonde hair, and blue eyes. Right? They all had Anglo-Saxon names. They all lived in suburban, middle-class houses. Now if you look at children's educational material, you'll see pictures and names of a range of ethnicities. However, as uh, Jan Olaf mentioned, that the real aim of this so-called multiculturalism is to suck out the real essence of others' cultures. What I've noticed is that in the books that purport to teach about different cultures, the differences are only superficial and cosmetic. Everyone is still living in a suburban middle-class house and basically living the same kind of lifestyle, but these people are wearing, you know, a sari, and these people have a little darker skin, but the lifestyle and the mood of life is identical. So the culture is given, oh, and the no curriculum is what you don't teach about. For example, in a school, do they teach about the fact that evolution is not a proven fact? Do they even mention it? Do they mention about uh, subtle things such as ESP? Is it even part of the curriculum? So that's how, that's how culture is put, of course, in the educational methods and the lesson plan. Then how do you choose your teachers? Who do you consider a qualified teacher? I visited a Sunday school once, and I said, how do you choose your teachers? And they said, oh, if it's a nice mataji. So if you're female and you're nice, then you may teach them. So that, how you choose your teachers very much demonstrates your educational culture. Then what kind of things you have after school? What kind of clubs? What kind of sports? Do you have anything? What is the nature of them? How much time do you give to them? We could also say, what awards do you have up in your school? You go to some schools, and the only awards they have up are for sports. Nothing for academics. Maybe they have a debate club, but are those trophies up or only the football team and the baseball team? The job descriptions of the staff members, the organizational structure of the school. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with 
of organizational theory, but whether or not the school is managed as a bureaucracy, as a simple structure, as an adhocracy, as a divisional form, also very much speaks to what is the culture of education. Then other things such as the type of the building. Uh, if any of you have visited our Krishnavanti school in London, you'll notice that the type of the building very strongly communicates the educational culture. I believe it's the only ecologically sound school building in the United Kingdom. And if you haven't visited there and you're in London, it's as much a must-see as Big Ben. Also, the location of the school, just like we're having meetings with Bhaktivinata College in Radhadesh, should the school be in Belgium, should the school be in London, should the school be in Mayapur, that speaks a lot about your educational culture. What kind of financial structure do you have? Do all the kids have to pay? Do you have donors or a combination? All right, so that's what we're talking about when we mean educational culture. And of course, that was a rather fast summary. I hope at least you got some idea of what we mean by educational culture. Now let's kind of back up a little bit and think about we're speaking about religious education or we're speaking about education as connected with the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. Therefore, we're not interested just in educational culture, but in religious culture. So we're going to look now at culture in general and religion in general. And we're going to say that every religion has a native culture. This is going to be our presupposition, that every religion has a native culture. And that native culture can come about in one of two ways. Either it can be the culture where the religion started. The culture where the religion started, just like Islam started in the Middle East. But Christianity also started in the Middle East, and we do not find that Middle Eastern culture is native to Christianity. In the case of Christianity, the culture is where the, the native culture is where the religion blossomed, which in this case happens to be in Europe. Or like Buddhism, although it started in India, its native culture is more in Tibet, China, Thailand, and so forth. Is that clear? Two different kinds of, two different ways that a culture can become native to a religion. So the native culture acts like the body to the religious soul. The religion gives life to the culture, and the culture is the concrete embodiment of the religion. When a religion is functioning in its native culture, there's an inseparable bond between that religion and its culture. A little example of native culture. We're going to look a little bit at the native culture for the Vaishnava. We have a very unique situation. And I'd like to ask all of you, because I personally don't like only lecture as a teaching method. What is it? In what way is the native culture for a Vaishnava different for the native culture for a Christian, or a Buddhist, or a Muslim, or a Jew. Some ideas? 
not your native culture, Prabhu. Vaishnava's native culture. Vaishnavism's native culture. Not your native culture. Our, our religions, if we can call it a religion, if that's all right with everybody, for the sake of this discussion, the native culture of our religion, not our personal native culture. What's different about the native culture of Vaishnavism from the native culture of all these other religions that we've considered? Yes? What? It's origin. Yes. Can anybody be a little bit more specific? Well, we'll look at a minute as to how much it's Indian. I'm not convinced that it's Indian. Yes? I'll repeat what you say. You want the microphone? He wants the microphone. Yes? Maybe I could just throw in something that from Vidaranda, that disciple of Vidaranda said, and what the culture of Gaudiya Vaishnava was. Yes, in his view, he said it was a synthesis of Oriya and Bengali culture. Oriya and Bengali culture. Interesting. Okay. That's interesting. Parabhakti Prabhu? Oh, you just want other people to get the microphone. Yes. You're getting your exercise this morning. Okay. So I'm thinking about what is different, uh, what is special about you know, our religion, as we call it. All I can think of, really, to say, are cultural things, isn't it, after all, like outward things I can point to. Yes. Because uh, religion seems to me to be a, a close sort of frame of reference, uh, you know, which is really difficult to like, step out of. And so I wonder, is that really, maybe that's too soon in your presentation to make it tomorrow, maybe is it really possible to separate this religion and culture? This mind-body that's, that's one of the main questions that we're addressing. Is it possible to separate religion and its culture? Well, I'd like to propose that Many people would think that the native culture to Vaishnavism is the Vedic culture. Would many people say that? Would, would many people say that? Maybe. Do you think many people in the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, if you said what's the, the ideal culture to express Vaishnavism, they would answer Vedic culture? Would that, would that be pretty accurate? You're right, and we're going to get there in a slide or two. But I want to look at, I want to look at, and that's why, that's, that's why we're starting off with what's the problems with talking about what culture is native to Vaishnavism. But if we say it's Vedic culture, then what's different about that is that Vedic culture and the process of Krishna Bhakti both come from the Shastra. Whereas I'm seeing in the case of these, and you can argue with me on this, and you can think I'm nonsense, and that's okay. But I would say that these other religions, the relationship with their native culture was more happenstance. That it just happened to be the country where that religion flourished, or it happened to be the country where that religion took root. Whereas Vedic culture is also described in the Srimad Bhagavatam. Not only the spirituality, but also the native culture. So that's my theory. Now, here we're getting to your point. What is Vedic culture? 
If we're going to say that the culture native to Vaishnavism is Vedic, what in the world is it? Oh, and somehow this picture went over the text. So Ritna Nandamaraj makes the point that maybe Vedic culture encompassed a wide variety of cultures. Maybe there was one culture for Vedic villages and another culture for Vedic cities and different cultures in different parts of the planet, even though they were all under the umbrella of Vedic. Maybe there wasn't just one Vedic culture. And can we really look at anything today and say, that's Vedic? Now, it's pretty hard to talk about having your native culture if you're not sure what your native culture is. Now, is it India? Is India the native culture of Vaishnavism? Whoa. How many of you here have been to India? How many of you would like to say that Indian culture is the native culture of Vaishnavism after being to India? Interesting. Okay. Some parts, probably. <laughs> you know, we, we, we look around India and we say, oh, I'm not really sure if I want to identify with all the parts of the culture I see around here. Right? And then there's different culture in different parts of India, as you're saying, or we in Bengali. That's different than the Manipuri culture, and that's very different than the culture in Kerala or Tamil Nadu. I sometimes huge differences. Which one of them is Vedic culture? And we find devotees will go to India and they'll spend some time in a village somewhere and they come back and saying, there it is, it's Vedic culture. Right? I, I had somebody, an unknown person, contact me and say, Ramila, you shouldn't wear a bindi if you wear a white sari with a border because where I come from, and this finally took me a half an hour to get it down to that, where I come from in India, we don't do that. And I said, well, in South India, all the married ladies wear white with water all the time. You know, all different cultures. And is India really what most of us would think of as Vedic, whatever we have in our head as far as what Vedic is? Maybe some things, but certainly not everything. So I don't think we can say there's a match between modern Indian culture and Vedic culture. Then there's different kinds of culture in different parts of India. Again, we're really not clear as to what's Vaishnavism's native culture. Thank you, Gord. Is, is you can't say it's Indian and you can't say it's not yes. Indian. You can't say it's Indian, but you cannot say that it is not You Indian. cannot say that it's not Indian. No, you can't. It's, it's confusing. It's confusing. So the, the, the basic foundation for this whole discussion is going to be confusion. <laughs> yeah, it is. it's worse than postmodernism. So you're with me so far. Okay. We're going we're, <laughs> we're to try to come to a conclusion. It's hard to come to a conclusion when there's so much fuzziness about one of your premises. But... I did want to point out that we have a fuzzy premise. What is the native culture of Vaishnavism? You know, Vedic culture is the native culture of Vaishnavism is a difficult premise, and Indian culture is the native culture of Vaishnavism is a difficult premise. And each of those premises could be discussed for a very long time, and we probably still wouldn't come to a conclusion. All right, 
let's put that aside for right now and move on to another type of culture, and that is alien cultures, a culture that's alien to a religion. So there's three different kinds of cultures that are alien to a religion. One is a local culture, which happens to be native to another religion. So European culture is alien to Vaishnavism. European culture is native to Christianity. Simple example is that here in Italy, are there national holidays for Janmastami and Akadasi? No. Christianity is still part of the culture, correct? It's much easier to be a Christian in Italy than it is to be a Vaishnava. The culture supports it, especially, I think, here in the south of Italy. Then there's two other kinds of alien culture, and Yan Olaf referred to these as rationalism and romanticism, which isn't exactly the same as these, but one is modernism or positivism, and the other is postmodernism or postpositivism. And interestingly enough, they both exist concomitantly in modern society, although they're rather opposed to each other. So modernism or positivism, just a little summary for those of you who don't know, that would say that there is an objective truth. A, there is an objective truth. It exists. And B, that objective truth can be known through our senses and logic. So that's the basis for science. Post-positivism says, we don't know if there's an objective truth, but whether or not there's an objective truth, it doesn't really matter because none of us can approach it through our senses and logic anyway. Therefore, whatever you have as your own truth is okay. Everybody has their own truth. Now, of course, nobody really lives like that because nobody would say that the cannibals in Papua New Guinea or the Nazi regime is just as good as anybody else. But these are the two alien cultures to all religions in the world because the one is saying that we can understand truth through empirical means and the other is saying that truth is either non-existent or irrelevant. And both of these philosophies are the ones fueling the global secular culture, which I believe came from my own birth country and has been spread all over the world, mostly through the media. All right. Now, religion and alien cultures. You might say, well, we have a really simple solution. Just stay within your own native culture. But as soon as a religion claims to be universal, as soon as it claims to be embodying some kind of sanatan dharma, it must contact alien cultures. Because we're saying that this religion is for everybody. Now, some religions don't claim universality. Some religions are what I would call ethnic religions. You're born into that religion, and you're considered to be in that religion if you're born into it, and they very much discourage converts. Some examples of... What happened to my other mic? Some examples, can you guys suggest, of religions that do not claim... The Jews. Uh, Especially the Orthodox Jews. Thank you. They don't claim to be universal. They don't preach. They say you're Jewish if you're born Jewish. And if you're born Jewish, even if you don't believe in God, even if you're not practicing any of the tenets at all, you're Jewish. And if you're not born Jewish, it's very difficult to convert. And the Orthodox Jews, at least, 
have very enclosed uh, cultural communities where they interact as little as possible with alien cultures. Another example. Yes. Yes, the Amish community, same thing. You're Amish if you're born Amish, although they, they're a little different in that to really become a full member of the Amish community, you have to take vows. But they also very much discourage con converts. They pretty much say converting is impossible. And they're also in a very enclosed community trying to separate themselves from alien cultures. Would we say that there's also a large group of people that considers Hinduism to be an ethnic religion. You're born a Hindu, you're Hindu because of your ethnicity, we don't preach, and we're not interested in interacting with alien cultures. So certainly there was, and I think to some extent still is, a view that Hinduism, which includes the practice of Vaishnavism, is an ethnic religion. But as soon as a religion says we are universal, where we can be applied to anybody, then immediately you're contacting alien cultures. Now, there's three different ways that you can contact alien cultures which are native to other religions. Remember, we talked about three categories of alien cultures. One is that ones that are native to other religions, one is the global secular culture of empiricism, and one is the global secular culture of postmodernism. So here's three examples of how you can have someone from religion contacting an alien culture. So one is the religion works in an area of native, and for, for the purpose of this, we're going to assume that India is the native culture. I, I know it's, I already discussed how it's problematic, we're going to start with that problematic, fuzzy assumption. So the religion works in an area of native culture with persons from an alien culture. So that would be like French children are attending a Hare Krishna school in Mayapur. Then religion works in an area of alien culture with persons of a native culture. Uh, this is not my computer, and the reason that some things are messed up is because this computer doesn't have my fonts. Sorry about that. And it was because the projector wouldn't work with my computer. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be careful. I'm sorry. You're in the alien culture. Um, yeah, I'm in alien computer culture. Okay, next is religion works in an area of alien culture with persons of the native culture. That's like Indian children going to a Vaishnava school in London. Then religion works in an area of alien culture with persons from the alien culture. So that's like New Zealand children going to a Hare Krishna school in Auckland. And we could say that Italians who are trying to become Krishna conscious in Italy is an example of that. So those, are, those were the three ways that a religion can impact alien cultures that are native to another religion. As far as impacting the two types of global secular culture, I think we have to say that even religions which don't claim universality are today not free from having to contact those alien cultures. If, if you study what's going on with the Amish today, they have not been able to keep their children from contact with the global secular culture. If you go to a little Himalayan village, you'll find contact with the global secular culture. Uh, even in Saudi Arabia, where I've been told that they look through your laptop to see if there's any religious pictures, in which case you either have to erase them from your laptop or not come in the country. Still, they've not been able to keep out all contact with the global secular culture. So what this means for us 
if we're interested in the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, there's two reasons why we must interact with alien cultures. One is that we claim universality, and the next is that the global secular culture is so pervasive that it's going to seep in wherever you are. Now, I bring up these points because there are certainly members of ISKCON who promote the idea that we should have an entirely insulated community, like the Amish or the Orthodox Jews. And my contention is that that is no longer 100% possible. Whether or not it's desirable is another question, but whether or not it's desirable, it is simply not possible. All right, we're going to look now, since we have to contact alien cultures, we don't have a choice about it. We can't say, okay, I, I'm just not going to contact alien cultures. I, I'm just going to make a little bubble, and I'm just going to go live in Mayapur. And I'm, I mean, maybe an individual could do that. But as a society, we can't do that. And for our children, we can't do that. It, it's not possible. And, and I'm going to make a full disclosure here and admit that as a, a parent in ISKCON 36 years ago, when I started parenting, I had that idea that, okay, we're going to make a little bubble around our kid. Now, we at that time, we lived in Chicago and we quickly moved to New York City. My, my oldest son uh, taught himself how to read by looking at all the signs in New York. And one of his first questions about reading was, Mata, why are there two F's and two E's in coffee? Anyway, that was my idea. So, it, it's also a little hard to see here because of the, the light in the room. I'm not sure how much you can, you can see this. So, the first way of interacting with alien cultures, we're going to call exclusive or aggressive. And the philosophy here is the culture of a religion's origin is the only one that can permit an authentic expression of its doctrines and values. The culture of the religion's origin is the only one that can permit an authentic expression of its doctrines and values. You can think about that while I'm pouring my water. So do we have people in ISKCON who feel this way? Do we have people who would say that it is only in Vedic culture or only in Indian culture that you can authentically be a devotee of Krishna? And as soon as you adopt anything from any other culture, your authenticity is compromised. Are there people who think this way? Definitely. Definitely. So when you think that way, then what you try to do is you try to insulate yourself as far as possible. You have an exclusive, aggressive attitude towards alien cultures. All right, what are the advantages? The advantages is you get a very strong identity because remember that your native culture really supports your spirituality. You get a lot of support from your culture and you get a real sense that, yes, I'm a devotee of Krishna. What are the downsides? Well, first of all, you have to have a kind of ghetto mentality. If you don't put yourself in a physical ghetto, like the Amish or the Orthodox Jews do, then you have to put yourself in a virtual ghetto, where you really don't interact practically at all with the outside alien culture. 
Or if you don't do that, if you do interact with the alien culture and you have an exclusive aggressive philosophy, you have to become almost schizophrenic. Not literally, of course. Where you, you just you can't express your religion whenever you're interacting with the alien culture. You've already decided that you can't express your religion authentically when dealing with the alien culture. So either you're authentically expressing your religion or you're not. And when you're not, you have to be almost like a different person. You can't remain and can't maintain an integrity both when you're functioning in your native culture and when you're functioning in an alien culture because philosophically you've decided that it's impossible to do so. The other problem from an exclusive aggressive stance is that for the members, either their religion becomes irrelevant or culture becomes irrelevant. If they decide, okay, I'm going to fully adopt my own native culture, I'm not going to have anything to do with alien cultures, then everything in the alien culture becomes irrelevant to them. Or if they want to function in the alien culture, then their religion becomes irrelevant to them. Yes? I've read and heard that members of the Islamic religion think like this, that when they're in the alien culture, they can interact, but they should not really disclose what they feel about the alien culture. They should, they should maintain the relationships in a smooth way. And they should adhere to their belief that this is not an authentic culture and alien like actually uh, so if you're doing that, then what that means is that if you're participating in that culture to any extent, you've ceased to be authentic in terms of your religion. That's basically what it means. If I, if I participate in any of the rites and the symbols and the behaviors of an alien culture, as soon as I do that, I've lost the ability to be authentic in terms of my spirituality, if I have this philosophy. Uh, do we find that this is one of the main struggles in our ISKCON movement? That people say, how do I be Krishna conscious out in the world? I mean, at least for myself, and I, I travel all over the world uh, teaching Krishna consciousness, I'd say this is one of the five main questions that I get asked everywhere I go. How do I be Krishna conscious out in the world? You know, I, I have to live in which one? I have to live in Mayapur. I have to live in Vrindavan. I have to live in an ashram. Otherwise, I can't really be a full devotee. And sometimes people will say, "Oh, these are the full-time devotees, and these are the part-time devotees." You know, which which kind of always struck me as, as interesting. So you know, I, I I can I can only be a devotee part-time if I have some interaction with the outside culture. Now again, the aggressive and exclusive stance gives you very strong identity and very strong cultural support. Okay, now whenever someone has an exclusive aggressive attitude towards alien cultures that are associated with another religion, what that means is that you really appear to be stealing the heart and the soul of that culture which is their religion. Now, we know that we feel this way when Christian missionaries, for example, come to India and try not only to teach Christianity, but also to destroy the locals' Indian culture. But people can also feel that way about us 
If we say take up Krishna consciousness, and that means also destroy everything in your culture. So whenever a religion contacts people in an alien culture and tries to convert those people, those people may feel that their culture is being stolen from them, not only that they're getting a different point of view. I, I should also give a disclaimer that uh, I don't have a firm conclusion about these things that I'm presenting, and I do not feel that my particular stance is necessarily, in my own personal life, is necessarily the ideal one. I'm presenting all the different options. Okay? Is that all right? Uh, I used to think that an exclusive aggressive stance was the only way to go, and I would say that even now, today, that on this continuum, I'm very close to the exclusive aggressive stance. So that's my own disclosure. But after studying this, I come to see that having that stance isn't all cherries and cream. It has, it has its, its high cost. All right, the next, when we have three ways of dealing with alien cultures. The first was exclusive aggressive. The second is relativistic, synchronistic. And the philosophy of this is that all elements of any culture are equally valid and can support our religion without care for the inner meaning and coherence of the culture. All elements of any culture are equally valid and can support our religion without care for the inner meaning and coherence of the culture. So remember that every culture is native to some religion or some philosophy of life. So behind the cultural rites and rituals and symbols, there is some sort of philosophy. And the relativistic, synchronistic point of view said, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What we're preaching is universal, and therefore it can express itself equally, authentically, in any culture, or in the trappings of any culture. Do we have people in ISKCON who feel like this? Definitely. Definitely. And uh, such people often present Krishna consciousness without anything relating to India or anything relating to, quote-unquote, Vedic. And all of the cultural trappings are that of whatever the alien culture that they're in. So the positive of this is you have full ability to integrate into the alien culture. You no longer have a dichotomy of, well, how, how can I be a devotee of Krishna in this alien culture? I can express my devotion to Krishna in any culture. The downside is that I may lose my religious identity. Because culture and religion and culture philosophy are very related. So if I try to keep my spiritual doctrines and my spiritual values and my spiritual point of view while adopting an alien culture, I may be influenced by the philosophy and the doctrine and point of view that develop that culture. And then I lose that cultural support. I lose the cultural support. The facility to express my own, just like in this temple, we formed a little island, uh, pretty much of native culture. Right? And you've got so much cultural support to be a devotee here. Does that make sense? You can walk around the property in a dhoti and sari with your hand in a bead bag, and nobody gives you a weird look. You can say, it's a codicy, I want to chant an extra few rounds today, and nobody says, you know, why aren't you getting to work, hopefully. Okay, the third way, which many of us may think, oh yes, this is the best way. 
But I really want to emphasize that each of these ways has its pros and cons. Each of these ways has its pros and cons. I am not propounding that this is the best way. It is inclusive and dialogic. The inclusive dialogic perspective says every culture and society met in space and time is a key to probe into deeper and universal dimensions of our own faith and mission. Every culture and society met in space and time is a key to probe into deeper and universal dimensions of our own faith and mission. So every culture has something valuable in it. There's a, there's a way in every culture that I can be authentic. Not every way, not everything, but there are ways. It's called dialogic because you're having a dialogue. The inclusive dialogic says, hey, there's, I have something to offer you. I've got some universal understanding of truth and how you can live that you might find helpful in your culture. And you have something that interests me. You have some aspect of your culture that I can also take in and use. So the results are an open and profound dialogue between your own religion and the alien culture. Also mutual participation that would become a synthesis between your religious life and the alien culture. Then also, ideally, the flexibility to keep your core practices and your identity while adapting to time, place, and circumstance. Sounds pretty good, right? Well, downsides is you actually, instead of getting the best of both, may get neither. And this is what we see today in India, where India has tried to bring in things from the West. And at least in my opinion, most parts of India have the worst of India and the worst of the West. Instead of the best of both, they have the worst of both. So trying to be dialogic and, and, and um, inclusive can simply end up with the worst of each. Because you've got to be discriminating as to what parts of the alien culture you can take on, and you've got to be discriminating as to which parts of your religion you can share. Oh, I should have asked, are there many people in ISKCON today that propound this philosophy? Also, it might be difficult to understand. You, you, you've got to really be thoughtful. Now, I know I put this as a con rather than a pro. But to really have an inclusive dialogic relationship with an alien culture, you've got to be deeply thoughtful. You've got to understand, okay, what parts of my, nat of my native culture are most essential to support my spirituality? And what parts of my culture can I replace with that of the alien culture? There's going to be a lot of discussion among practitioners of the religion. There's going to be polemics. Right? If you take an exclusive aggressive stance, it's easy. Everybody out there is awful. Everything they do is terrible. There's no way that you can be an authentic Krishna Bhakta in that culture. Finish. We make a wall, we make an enclave, we kind of sneak out and distribute the book in Prasadam and then run back into our enclave. Of course, the problem is we bring back people with us from that alien culture. And a lot of us are from the alien culture, so it's a little problematic. But philosophically, it's pretty simple. You don't have to decide what out there is worth something. And you don't have to decide what parts of your culture are essential and what's not. Every part of my native culture is good, and every part of the alien culture is bad. Of course, then we have the little tiny problem that we, as devotees of Krishna, are not even sure what our native culture is. So 
So even if you take the exclusive aggressive approach and try to simplify your life, then you start fighting about what's Vedic culture or what's Indian culture or which part of Indian culture and which part of Vedic culture is authentic and which part is not authentic. So you end up with that problem. Then if you take the relativistic synchronistic position, that's also pretty simple. Everything out there is good. Culture is irrelevant. Just take everything. But if you have the dialogic inclusive point of view, it's difficult. You have to think. You have to consider. You have to research. There's going to be strong differences of opinion. Uh, the other, it's very black and white. By the way, I've, I've noticed in ISKCON that there's uh, two interesting approaches to trying to separate Krishna consciousness from its native culture. One is to present Krishna consciousness devoid of all Indian and maybe Vedic cultural trappings. And the other is to increase the cultural aspects and say, this is a cultural festival. This is an Indian cultural festival. It's not spiritual. It, it's just Indian culture. And the other is to say, no, this is just spiritual, and it has nothing to do with India. That's a little side note. That's a little tangent. And culturalization is the idea of having a dialogic approach, where there is a mutually enriching critical correlation between religious faith and societal culture, where there's a creative integration of the two. So this is the ideal of the dialogic approach. Okay, what's the challenge? If you want to be inclusive and dialogic, how do you do it? How do you integrate your own religious faith, which has a foreign cultural origin and is closely bound to an alien culture, with your own indigenous cultural tradition? Now, most of us in this room I'd say we're brought up in a culture that was alien to Krishna consciousness to some degree or another. And how do we do it? Though that alien culture is, is a part of us. No matter how many times I go to India, I still don't like it when they put another japati on my plate. I've never come to like it. I've come to respect it, but I've never come to like it. I, I haven't really become part of that culture. And I've talked to Westerners who've lived in India for 20 or 30 years, and they're still not really fully part of that culture. They're still retaining parts of their alien culture. So how do you do this practically? Now, what did, then we have the big question, perhaps not for scholars, but for, you know, kind of diehard fanatics like me. Well, what did Prabhupada want? Why don't we just find out what Prabhupada wanted? And that would solve all of our questions. Well, I'd like to suggest that you can find evidence for Prabhupada wanting all three, which makes it a lot more interesting. So how can we say that Prabhupada wanted an exclusive approach? Well, food. Now, I'm sorry to disappoint all of you, but until 1978, I never saw anything cooked with yeast in the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. I never saw any pizza. When Prabhupada was here, our food was pretty much what Prabhupada taught us to cook, with a few exceptions. We made baked cakes and cookies. And the dress. Right? Of course, when Prabhupada first came, we didn't even have authentic dress. I used to wear this big polycotton saffron sari that had like 25 pleats and it was about this long. And 
had a gray border from dragging on the ground. And it, it was so heavy that I had to pin it like this for it to stay on my head, and the pin would move up to here. So even, I mean, the Indians would look at us and think, what, what planet were we, were we from? But uh, certainly in the early days of ISKCON, Srila Prabhupada did have, you know, the cultural clothes, the cultural food, the language. I, I, and for many of us who joined in that time, we made a complete, or what we thought was a complete, cultural changeover. You know, as the years have gone by, I've seen how incomplete it really was and how much I'm still an American and a New Yorker and other things, which some of you know. All right, and it was Prabhupada's desire relativistic or synchronistic. And again, sorry that there's no proper diacritics on this computer. I'll, I'll read this, I don't know if you can see it. He said, in our Krishna consciousness movement, the tactic of dressing oneself like an ordinary karmi is necessary because everyone in the demoniac kingdom is against the Vaishnav teachings. The preachers of Krishna consciousness must go forward in their Vaishnava dress or any other dress for the purpose of preaching. We don't say that you don't advance in material education. You advance, but at the same time you become Krishna conscious. That is our propaganda. We don't say that you don't. You do not manufacture motor car, or you do not manufacture so many machines. We don't say. But we say, all right, you have manufactured this machine, employed in Krishna service. That is our proposal. We don't say, stop it. So this is the idea that whatever's out there, and in fact, my husband was always fond of quoting Prabhupada uh, saying in the Nectar of Devotion that if there's a dictaphone machine, you must use it. Not just that you may use it, you can use it, you can choose to use it, you must use it. So that view is definitely a relativistic or synchronistic point of view. Now what about the inclusive dialogic point of view? I really like Prabhupada's example of the lame man and the blind man. So he's saying that the West is blind and India is lame. And if they combine together, they can go somewhere. And Prabhupada was often asking that we use Western organization, intelligence, and expertise in Krishna's service. He didn't say, give up all of your Western culture and just take up Indian culture. He's, he would say in India to his American disciples, if you can't do something wonderful, what's the use of your being Americans? That was his mentality. The Bhaktivedanta Institute, I also interpret as an inclusive or dialogic approach, presenting Krishna consciousness through the language of modern science. And here's one of Prabhupada's quote about the blind man and the lame man. Okay, here's another uh, quote supporting the inclusive dialogic approach. The expert devotees can also discover novel ways and means to convert the non-devotees in terms of particular time and circumstance. Devotional service is dynamic activity, and the expert devotees can find out competent means to inject it into the dull brains of the materialistic population. Such transcendental activities of the devotees for the service of the Lord can bring a new order of life to the foolish society of materialistic men. Lord Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and his subsequent followers exhibited expert dexterity in this connection. So this idea that if we're really going to teach a universal religion, that it should involve the expertise of doing it according to time, place, and circumstance, and according to the alien culture in which we find ourselves. Okay, now we're going to take a very brief look at a, the same or a very similar subject from a completely different discipline. And that is from the discipline of organizational theory. 
Now, this is really in concern, not so much to a whole society, certainly not with religion, but looking at organizations, such as a business. So here we're going to look at three kinds of businesses, or three kinds of organizations, closed, porous, and flexible. And we'll notice here that the definition of a closed organization is very much like the exclusive, aggressive stance. A closed organization has a stuck vision, which can't be applied according to time, place, and circumstance. People are most concerned with dogma and not with being effective. In the beginning, there's euphoria, and in the end, there's misery. What does that sound like? By the way, closed organizations are very useful when an organization is new. When you have a beginning organization, closing it to everything outside that organization, gives people euphoria and strength and a sense of identity. If you stay closed, you end up having misery. Internal change agents, a closed system has little or no support outside the system. So everything you need has to come from within your own system. You can't get any help from outside. Internal change agents are scapegoated and kicked out. In a closed system, success is measured more by whether the client accepts the belief system than by whether or not the services are of benefit to the client. When the clients get better in such a system, it is due to the truth of the organizational belief system. When clients go, don't get better, it's the fault of the client. I don't have to apply these, right? You're all doing that? Okay. There's little movement of people or ideas in and out of the organization. So the ideas don't go from the organization out or from outside in. Leaders act as tight gatekeepers on everything going in or out. Of course, that can't happen in this kind anymore. Members come to depend on the organization for all their professional, social, and sexual needs. So certainly we see that this was true of the early days of this kind. And some of this is probably still true today in certain places. I would not say that ISKCON as a whole anymore is a closed organization, but there are certain areas of ISKCON that are certainly closed organizations. Okay, some other things about closed organizations, and even I can't read it on screen. And I've shown this before, and it was readable, so it really is, it's not, it's not me. Um, Status and rewards in the organization become based on one's social relationship with organizational members rather than by one's professional contribution. When MS social and professional with MS social and professional roles, decision making becomes complicated and corrupted due to a conflict of interest. There is excessive time and emotional demands. I, I was recently in an unnamed part of the world where I met uh, devotees in a particular profession who told me that they had moved there to get away from working in a devotee business. They said, we want to work for the people outside. I said, why? They said, when we work for a devotee business, they expect us to work seven days a week, 24 hours a day. We have no time for our family. We have no time for break. We hardly even have any time for our sudden. Stress spillover into personal lives may put a large strain on marriages. Lack of outside replenishment leaves members physically and emotionally depleted and reaching out to other members for support, including sexual support. There's a breakdown of intimacy barriers. Forces in a closed system that will support members terminating outside marital relations, particularly when the outside partner remains aloof and unsupporting of the organization. If a marriage occurs during the time the couple work together in the closed system, 
One or both partners leaving may provoke a crisis in the marriage. The closer the functional relationship between married couples in a closed system, the greater the marriage strain as they cannot separate work and private life. Participation in closed organization creates a broad spectrum of unmet needs and increases the incidence of exploitation of the helper-client relationship. So that's what happens in organizations that are closed or that take an exclusive, aggressive stance to anything outside of the organization. All right, now what about organizations that have a relativistic, synchronistic point of view and are what's called in organizational theory, porous? So we'll go through this list for porous organizations. Now, instead of no movement between the organization and the outside, there is completely unregulated movement of people and ideas across the boundary between the organization and the rest of society. There's a minimal definition of values, membership, and expected behavior. Are we seeing that this is starting to happen in this country? That we're moving almost from a closed organization to a porous organization. One, one uh, woman in Belgium who joined the movement a year ago and who was a very successful lawyer in Spain for many, many years, came to speak to me and she said, Ermila, if you can just tell me what is ISCON and what is a member of ISCON, I'd be most grateful. So there's a minimal definition of values, membership, and expected behavior. If you don't know, this question is being discussed at the highest levels of leadership. What is ISCON? What is a member of ISCON? Members have little or no intimacy among themselves, no sense of mission, Organization gets overwhelmed and assimilated into the greater environments, invisible or ineffective leaders, great diversity of membership with little or no shared interests, little or no support for members either professionally or socially, great leader turnover and staff gets discontent, internal change agents are ignored, in the closed system they're scapegoated, in the poor system they're ignored. Porous organizations often want consultants to help define the mission, core values, goals, and ethical standards, and define these through a, and define these through a participatory, participatory process that enhances interpersonal relationships. So they often have to ask people to come in from the outside to define their own goals and values. There's often interpersonal dissension, deteriorating staff morale, poor motivation and productivity, and high turnover of the best and the brightest. Okay, a flexible organization here is not exactly the same as the dialogic, but really a flexible organization is one in which the leaders and the members can move along this continuum from being closed or porous according to the need. So whereas the dialogic approach to alien cultures is almost a fixed point, the idea of a flexible organization is, well, sometimes we close, sometimes we open, sometimes we have an exclusive stance, sometimes we have a relativistic stance, and sometimes we have a dialogic stance depending on the need and depending on the circumstance. Now, such a system serves the purpose and needs of both the organization and its individual members, and has a vision that's alive, that's alive and dynamically refined and redefined. So we see that a closed system, it's happiness in the beginning, misery at the end. A porous system is simply misery. And a flexible system, although it's very difficult to do, although it's very difficult to do, it's really meeting the needs of both the members and the organization. It's keeping the organization's core values alive while adapting them to time, place, and circumstance. Now this is just the same list I went over in the beginning of the areas of educational culture. And I would like to suggest that what really needs to be done in our society 
is to go through this list of educational culture and decide, okay, to what extent do we have to determine this educational culture based strictly on our native culture, and to what extent do we interact with alien cultures? Again, in order to do things by our native culture, we first have to find out what our native culture is. All right, here are some pictures of Krishna conscious education in a native culture. Can you see those? And here's Krishna conscious education interacting with alien cultures. I don't know how well you can see those. Can you see? A lot of light in this room. All right, so we discuss what is culture, the areas of educational culture, uh, types of native culture, native culture where religion either started in that culture or flourished in that culture. We discuss the problematic situation of defining Vaishnavism's native culture. We talked about the types of alien culture, those which are native to other religions, and the global, two kinds of global secular culture. We talked about the three different ways of interacting with alien culture, and then we looked at organizational theory. So I hope this created more questions than it. No. <laughs> I presented a slightly changed version of this recently at the Festival of Inspiration at New Vrindavan. I was presenting it with the slant of how do you deal with the stigma of being a religious person in a secular society. And one of the participants came up to me afterwards and said, Ermila, that was a typical academic presentation. There's no conclusion. So I hope, I hope at least that I've brought in your thinking a little bit. Uh, one of the things that I've gained by studying this is a clearer way to make my own decisions and a better way of evaluating my own decisions rather than just assuming that, okay, however I want to interact with the alien culture must be all positive. So before I have questions, I'd like to, I hope I'm not going to be burned at the stake for this, but I thought I might like to demonstrate to you, and I wasn't going to do this, and then when I was reviewing my presentation, I thought, but Ermila, it fits. I thought that I would like to demonstrate to you what we're doing in education, because I know Shana Karisipu is going to be speaking this afternoon about the future of education. So somewhat by design, somewhat by human design, and somewhat by divine design, we've ended up starting a curriculum approach which definitely has a dialogic view in terms of native culture and alien culture. And you, you may know that there's no, there has never been any comprehensive professional curriculum materials for our primary and secondary students in ISKCON. And if, if you're not directly involved in education, you might not know that, but it just doesn't exist. You can't say, all right, here's a science course for kids age 10, and here's all the materials for the student, and here's all the materials for the teacher. It just doesn't exist. Uh, there were certainly attempts to make educational materials for children in the early days of ISKCON, but I think I can say that none of them were done at a professional level. They certainly weren't done at a professional level in terms of the paper and the printing quality and the illustration quality. They were done on mimeograph machines or photocopies and stapled together. Right, Gory Prabhu? Yes, I noticed that. It's a very pretty ceiling. And I think, you know, when you... Although the ceiling at the, at the Fisher Mansion in Detroit, our temple in Detroit, if you really want to see a nice ceiling, I highly recommend that you go there. I think it's the best ceiling we have anywhere in this kind of temple. 
When I was a little kid, I used to fantasize about what it would be like to walk on the field. Anyway, I think when you give kids things that are just photocopied in staples, your hidden curriculum, you guys remember about that? The planned curriculum, the taught curriculum, the hidden curriculum, and the no curriculum? The hidden curriculum is, we don't really care about you. We'll spend money on other things, but we won't spend money on you. And the other way in which the early attempts were not professional is they were not using the educational methods and philosophy and research from the outside culture. Nor were they using the educational methods and philosophy from the native culture because nobody knew, or I would even be so bold as to say knows, what they are. So they really weren't using any professional methods. So what we did was we consulted with top people out in the education field to put together a system of reading that works with all the ways that reading is taught in the world. We're using two British systems, one American system, one New Zealand system. So that all the methods that have been used to teach reading that are successful are being used in these books. Which means that every page of every book is, and somebody said they didn't like the word controlled, but it is. It's controlled for what we call phonics, which is the sound-spelling combination of the English language. It's controlled for vocabulary, punctuation, sentence length, sentence type of construction, concepts, relationship of pictures to text, size of the text, right, what kind of font is used, about 20 different considerations. And the books go from just beginning the alphabet to learning how to read. And then they also have extensive instructions for teachers and we have people who are not native English speakers going through this and, and proofreading it. So it really becomes a complete literacy program. But I think the way in which it's really dialogic, and it's interesting because when I showed this facility in Mayapur to hundreds or thousands of devotees, a number of them said, wait a minute, how can you use gizmos and technology in teaching Krishna conscious education? So I was hit with some people who had that exclusive, aggressive, Stance. Yes. Yes. I know. This will take me two. So what we do with these books is not only are they regular books, but they're books that can speak to you. Krishna did sip it. Yeah, this is good. So the pictures talk to you. The text talks to you. That Krishna's, I, I'm sorry, Shadakrishu, that all the voices in the book for English are British except for mine. No, that Krishna's British, I'm sorry. Krishna, nap, Yashoda said. So I am Yasoda in this one. It's nap time, my darling boy. <laughs> well, we thought we should have one American voice. I'm baby Krishna. That's definitely British. And you can also be able to hear the books in one of 25 languages. Spanish. And it will be Italian, though I can't demo that. This is just a demo book, so I can only show you four. Russian. That's Russian. So that's, this is, so this, this diehard, exclusive, aggressive lady has finally done something dialogic. So. Anyway, I thought you'd be interested in something not just theoretical, but practical. 
Okay, so we have five minutes. I hope it was okay. Was it okay that I showed you? Yes. Unless I give very short answers. Yes, come right, please. A culture native to a religion. Well, it makes, it makes it much more difficult. But still, if you want to practice Krishna consciousness and you go to India, especially if you go to a place like Vrindavan or Mayapur or some places in South India, the culture overall is going to support your religious practice in, in ways that just don't exist here in Florence. And in the same way, if you want to be a Catholic here, you'll get much more support than if you, from the culture than if you want to be a Catholic in, in Vrindavan. Do we have we have we have three more minutes? Thank you very much. Hare Krishna.